I am here with Dr. Vera Jaffe continuing our discussion on the comorbidities of selective mutism or the whys of SM, where there are factors into the development and maintenance of SM that need to be understood to develop an appropriate treatment plan for home, real world, and school, and even the workplace for adults. So welcome back to this episode. If you have not heard episode one, I suggest you Look back on that episode because it certainly sets the stage for this. Hey, Dr. Jaffe, welcome back. Let's just continue on. So we talked about sensory and we talked about the highly sensitive individual all the way up to someone that's truly dysfunctional in their ability to regulate sensory-wise. They really causes them incredible distress. And one of the number one ways that we see this, and I'm sure you do, is in behaviors, these kids with yes. challenging behaviors, emotional regulation. At home. Yeah, t- at home. Tell us about some cases yes. of yours like that. Yes. So it's really interesting because um, actually, as we speak, I'm analyzing the data that we have, which is about 132 uh, cases that we have uh, to look and to see if there is behavioral difficulties with the SM more so than the general population. And I'm not going to say oppositional defiant disorder, but or behavioral uh, challenges. So I start treating, they come to for the SM. And of course, I do this very long, comprehensive developmental history. And I watch them at home too. And I see, wow, you know, what's going on at home. So when we see that those behaviors are happening because the kids are holding in all the way when they get home, it's like, I am the boss of this house now. A lot of kids with other type of anxiety, like separation anxiety, are like that too. So or school refusal are like that too at home. So how do we work with that? And then I have to tell the parents, you know, it sounds like there are two levels of interventions that I see that are necessary. And they say, what? You know, like they came so that the kid, like you said, they want their kid to speak at school, right? And then I see that. So how do I do it in a way so that they understand that that's also important to be treated? And the two of them are related. Yes. Because they are related. So how do we treat that? And I offer to treat that. Um, and of course, you know, I do it from a neurodevelopmental point of view, but parent-child interaction therapy was actually originated to treat oppositional behavior. So the approach and what they learn for the SM can help them with the other part too. But it's important to work with that. And I think that that has a connection with the SM, the behavioral difficulties. Not all the kids are like that, but a great percentage of the children are like that. And I can't wait to report to you the results that we find from this study that we're like analyzing the data now. That's awesome. That's awesome. So when you mentioned about the oppositional defiant disorder, which, you know, we often see manifesting as difficult behaviors, that goes back again to look, listen, and learn. What is your child telling you by them, by their acting out? What, they're not, they weren't born to torture us, right? What are they right. telling us? They're uncomfortable. They're not comprehending. They're not getting it at that moment. They're feeling overwhelmed, exactly. underwhelmed. They're hungry. They're tired. They're acting out. They can't regulate well. And so we see, you know, dealing with behaviors, um, difficult behaviors is such a big part of what we do. And that need for inner control, not to control a parent, to control what they're feeling inside, right? Right. Exactly. And then that structure in their life. And then it comes out that way. Absolutely. So the structure. And what happened? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you 
Moscow. <laughs> no, say this chapter because I want to hear what you have to say about this. Well, chapter. I was. I always um, emphasize the need for structure, consistency, routine, and predictability. And again, that that helps the children know what, when, and where as much as humanly possible when you're raising a family. We know how difficult that is. Yes. But charting, yes. seeing what's happening at the beginning of the week, the end of the week, even their daily calendars, and giving them choices and preparing these children and really listening to what they're telling us. I mean, when, you know, a real um, important parenting goal, because I'm sure you're like this, we're really big with giving, you know, charts that will help parents unlearn their conditioned behavior, but also become very aware. And giving a parent a parenting goal chart of, journaling the child's difficult behaviors. Yeah. When are they occurring? Yeah. Is it when they're tired? Exactly. They're hungry? They're overstimulated, stimulated, understimulated? When is it occurring? Before school? Or something. After school, right? Exactly. I think that the contingency plan is really important to analyze behaviorally. There's a contingency plan, the ABC, antecedent behavior and consequences. It's a, it's a number one thing that we do in behavior therapy, but also there are the other systems, neurodevelopmental systems that you say are working on this. Um, but I also think that it's important that we see that so that the parents can learn ways, first of all, when they observe the child's behavior, they're observing their own reaction too. And I ask them to actually videotape the meltdowns at home. I'm really into watching the real thing happening because the way that the parents report to me may be a little bit different because parents walk on eggshells with their children when they're having those episodes. So how am I going to help them in giving that structure that you were talking about without knowing how they're doing that. And I have several examples of parents that are so afraid, even at home, that their kids are going to have a meltdown, let alone, you know, in their restaurant. Oh, no, 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 it's okay. You can order ice cream for dinner <laughs> as long as you don't have a meltdown, right? Right. So, or not order, have me order because you're not going to order because you have SM, right? And I'm going to accommodate that for you too. So, uh, I think that it's really important to do an analysis of the behaviors, you know, what was happening before, what was happening during, and what was the consequence, not behaviorally only, but what time of the day, how does a child sleep? You know, what is the structure in the family? Do you have a meal together? Do you just, you know, it, there are many things about family life that is so important. And I tell parents that they need to be patient with me because in order for me to develop a treatment plan, I need to find out about all of those, those factors because the, the child is not alone in the vacuum, especially when you have this double dip of these behavioral difficulties at home and the SM at school and in public places. Yeah. No, for sure. So yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I, talk about the quad, the eating, sleeping behaviors, and toileting issues that are often a part of some of these challenges, the difficulty to regulate themselves, um, and some of the developmental disorders that we see, the quad. So knowing how to kind of look for those challenges and then knowing how to incorporate that into uh, you know treatment plans are really important. So we've talked about speech and language. We've talked about some sensory sensitive situations, <laughs> these kids being sensory sensitive. And I think you would be perfect to, you know, talk about the bilingual, multilingual piece um, and misunderstanding the silent period. And um, that's a huge thing that right. we see. Right. Um, so we presented, you know, I got 
I had a very, <laughs> it was a big project for me. Five people from far different countries presenting last year at SMA. But basically, again, I said that in the beginning, bilingualism and does not implicate, does not cause SM. There is something to say about immigration. And in and, and our times, what's been going on in this world, we know that certain types of immigrations are very, very traumatic for families. And th that can create a lot of difficulties in adjusting to a new environment with another language for the family. And most importantly, if a family that could be, I mean, I have Brazilian families that have been here in Florida like for 15 years, but the parents do not speak English. They only relate to people who are Brazilians and their kids may develop selective mutism, not because of that, but if the parents who move to the States or they speak another language, they do not adjust and adapt to the new environment and accept the new environment and, and accommodate to the new environment, then they're going to be a closed kind of culture and their kids are going to suffer from it. So it's more than bilingualism, it's, be, it's multiculturalism too that we talk about. But I will tell you that many parents ask me, and I would love to hear what Evelyn has to say about that, but many parents ask me, so I speak English with my child at home? And I say, no, you speak your mother tongue because that's how you communicate. This is, an, it's like a psycholinguistics, you know, anthropology. Together, you need to speak the language of the heart. But when they are outside, they need to speak English. And I have a lot of Spanish-speaking families here. And I say very clearly, you need to speak English with your child when you are at school or we go to the ice cream shop. They need to speak English with their child. So the bilingualism, I think it's really important to work with people who, who speak the language of the country where they live, right? And then explain and help the parents accept that you know, first of all, they have guilt associated to being having moved or speaking another language, but to help them understand that in certain situations, it's best if they speak English with their kids outside of the house. So, no, that's a great, many great points. Something that um, I also recommend sometimes is timers. So a lot of these kids are very stuck in this. They don't want to speak English. So we get plenty of kids that they don't want to speak English, let's say, or whatever the language is that they need to communicate with. Let's say that they are living in Spain or another country. It doesn't matter. They only want to speak that language that's spoken to them and they will not speak, let's say, English. So we'll set timers. The, the family will set timers where everyone is going to only speak English during this time and then they get a reward afterwards so they can go get ice cream or watch longer TV. Everyone's doing it. And for some of the kids, we'll even say, this is helping everyone be able to speak English more. So we're all going to do it. And depending on the family, depending on the child, obviously we tweak kind of the explanation, but that timer philosophy, especially when it's very tangible and they're keeping track and they're trying to beat the time from the day prior, that's been very very good for a lot of the kids because it's it's kind of a game. It's kind of, I'm going to get points and they're thinking about that. Um, and that, you know, when someone's speaking a language, like we often have families speaking, parents or grandparents are speaking one language, another family member speaking a different, and then they're intertwining English. So it's like three or four languages that they're yes, speaking. Yes. 
Even when it's, yeah. let's say, oh, we only speak Spanish, but they combine Spanish and English to like Splinglish or however yes. you want to talk about. It. So now there's three languages. And so the child is now, you know, speaking these languages or hearing this lang- these languages at home. And as you said, culturally, but now they're going into, let's say, an English speaking preschool and the kids are speaking real quickly. They're using, you know, culturally, maybe they're different. So their body language is different and they're trying to just process. I always say these kids are, a lot of them are what we call assessors. They're assessing the environment. They're taking it in. They're sensitive. They're yeah, checking it out. anxiety, right. that, that's what they do. They, they assess. The they assess. Yeah. So as they're assessing yeah. and if they're highly sensitive, right? So they're highly sensitive. They're timid by nature, let's say. Now that adds to all this, right? And now, so it's oh, like the, that anxiety just keeps going. It's like a yes. snowball effect. It's not so much that they yeah. speak a different language and they're trying to digest that and interpret it. They're also timid, perhaps. They're also sensitive. And maybe on top of it, they have a language issue. Like you don't know. It's it's a smorgasbord of it's issues. Different, la- different layers. You're right. Um, coming, having been an immigrant, um, I want you to know that when I was in graduate school, finishing my dissertation, one of my professors said, why should you be a psychologist? You will never be able to be a psychologist because you don't speak the language Oh, my correctly. gosh. I still don't. My kids correct me. But I think that there is a code switch, what we call like in psychoanthropology, like I learned that when I was in graduate school. When I speak with my kids in Portuguese, suddenly there is a reason for it, Right. I mean, there is a code switch that we do, but I think that it's really important to help the parents with their acculturation because we know that if parents adjust and not that they're going to lose their culture, but they're going to accept and be open a little bit to the culture where they live, that it's going to be easier. And you said something I just want to say about this silent period because it has to be one month. If a child has moved from another country, we have to have the SM. We have to wait one month to to uh, diagnose that. And that happens quite often in immigrants' family where the, the children don't speak right away. So Right. So that kind of making differential between having SM and going through that natural silent period. Um, and yes. this also goes into parent expectations and being realistic. So often parents want results yesterday. You know, I want my child to speak. He needs to speak. He needs to tell his teacher what he knows. He needs to make friends. He needs to. And and they will convey parents to children too often. You should, you should, you should. You need to, you need to, you need to. So I will often say we need to take that language out. You need to and you should because all that's happening is making your child feel more anxious, more avoidant and SM is only going to be reinforced because it's like a mountain out of a molehill. Push, push, you need to, you need to. I mean, children don't feel good about themselves. So I think parents need to be really realistic of what they're expecting. I mean, some of these kids who aren't even engaging, let's say they're stage zero, they're stage one, they're not initiating even non-verbally. They're not communicating verbally, but yet you need to talk to your teacher. You need to talk to your friends. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. So we're actually reinforcing all these anxieties and this avoidant behavior by having that you need to, you should language. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is because as much as we're talking about these comorbidities, the speech and language, the sensory challenges, being bilingual, the cultural aspect, yes, that's very tangible. But the way parents approach their children 
really needs to be a focus too, because parents want to help, obviously. But so often we hear that push, push, push to talk. You need to talk, go to talk, sticker to talk. If you talk, everyone's got to talk. And we're just basically creating an avoidance because they're not understanding that there's a reason why they're not. Look, nobody chooses this. No one chooses it. So I think a, a big part of what we do and is, is parent education and support through all of this and the awareness of these aren't separate challenges. This is all part of who your child is. And we're going to address yeah. this from a, you know, a multidimensional way, right? We're going to uh, uh, approach yes. it. But what is your thought with what I'm saying now with the parenting piece? Cause that's so big and it really does then cause the children to react a certain way. So they're either open and sharing with their parents or they're avoiding and shut down and deny things because of how their parents may or may not react, right? Right. So as we say, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So if their kids are perfectionists, the parents are too. And if they want to have results right away, you know, they put pressure on their kids. But I think that the key word that you said is parent training. The minute that you have a first meeting with the parents and you show the empathy for their frustration yeah. and you start already teaching them the possible contingencies that are happening. I always ask the question, say, how was you? How was your childhood? At least one of them will say, well, I was a little timid, whatever. How did you handle so that they would relate immediately to that? But I think that if they feel listened to and they understand that the kids don't choose to do that, they also are given some tools that they are going to be the therapists. They are going to be the ages of change. So I have two kinds of parents, one that are very pushy ones. And then there are ones that I say, well, how about play dates? Oh, I don't know how to go about doing a play date with my little kid. You know, like they have so much anxiety about talking to other parents that if I did give them the suggestion to have a play date, then they talk about their own anxiety about that. So it's important to listen and to, in the first moment you will have with them to develop that, to have that rapport with them so that they will talk a little bit about themselves and they will feel understood. They will be less likely to be so pushy. I mean, not all of them, but of course, I just had one parent ask me today in a phone conversation, how many sessions do you think it's going to oh, take? Oh, I know. I love that question. Right? <laughs> That's like an insurance company question, yeah. right? But, like, I'm glad I don't have to answer that. But, you know, I tell them it depends. I know a lot of factors, but there are certain factors that are contribute for the success of faster, more effective intervention and some that are a barrier too. No, absolutely. And we talked about the comorbidities and, you know, we've, we've been talking about some of them. But one thing that really can't be missed or discussed is the social anxiety piece. You know, we're talking about speech and language, you know, the not so common things that you see or parents don't focus on, but the timid, shy child. But, you know, when we did this genetic study early on, I remember that was our very first study we did through the Selective Mutism Group, which is now the Selective Mutism Association, was um, with Murray Steen at um, UCLA and Denise Shavira. Yes, yeah, that yes. was the very first study. I'll never forget approaching yes. him at um, 2010. Oh my gosh. I'll never, no, yeah. uh, I think it was earlier than that. I, yeah, I think okay. it was. There was a, 
it was like one of my very first conferences and I remember seeing him and approaching him and was like, I'd love to be able to do a genetic study. And in that genetic study, it's the family history study. I mean, the large percentage of anxiety in this, these families was social anxiety being just the number one and such a big piece. And you figure child is social anxiety, chances are one of the parents or both parents have social anxiety, yes. usually one. And just a little, like, just for our listeners, what I tell families and I, as I train professionals and talk to teachers about this, this is interesting. The less socially anxious an individual is. So a child comes into your office, they're, they're anything but timid, Vera. They're like outgoing. They come up, they might take something off my desk. They might even talk to me like any other child. The less timid they are, that's when my antenna goes up and go, what else is causing this SM? Right? Yes. The typical yes. dictionary case of the shy, timid child, I, you know, the, in the dictionary, that picture of that timid child with her hand in her mouth. Right. Yes, that's a large percentage, but there are so many kids that we see and probably at where you treat and also at the Smart Center, we don't always get the easiest cases because they've usually exhausted local treatment professionals. Right. So if they're traveling to the Smart Center or doing telehealth through the Smart Center, they've usually exhausted locally. And what we find is it's these kids that, what else is going on, kids, right? And so it's very clear so it's more than shyness. What do you find with the kids who are socially not anxious and are non-verbally? I, I say that they have this, all the muscles of their face so well developed because they can speak non-verbally and, and gesture-wise. What do you think is the other part, the other side of them that you find in this children? Well, if they're real, it depends on where they are on the bridge. Some of these kids, let's say a child with speech and language issues, just let's say pretty severe expressive language issues. They're not able to put their thoughts together and say it. And that give, take, back, forth, a conversation comes and goes. And it's easier to not speak because they've, right. they've lost their way in a conversation. Yeah. So yes. this could just be, and I don't mean to say just as if I'm minimizing it, but it could be a child with speech and language. It could be a child with sensory issues who, you know, they get, they shut down in school environments. It's loud, it's large. It could be a child with processing issues. We didn't talk a lot about processing, right. um, central auditory processing disorder. You mentioned the child with the, oh, yeah. the headphones. I've seen that where in a quiet environment where there's not much going on, the child is functioning well, but put them in a classroom. And when there's a lot of stimuli, the child audible, they can't process everything. They're missing directions. They're looking at their friend's homework. They're looking at the teacher. They're shutting down. They're just, they're acting out behaviorally. What else is going on, right? So for these kids, it could be many of those yes. other reasons other than being timid. And that's why I'm saying my antenna goes up and says, what else is going on? But one thing, look, I'm a parent of a child who had selective mutism, right? So I've lived a very shy, timid child that was not able to function. So I'm coming at this as a professional now, but also as a parent that knows what it feels like, right? But too often, parents have too high expectations. They also can be embarrassed when their child is not speaking, their manners. And so that sense the child gets of need right. to talk, you got to talk. If you talk, you need to talk. That ex increased expectation for speech actually can cause a 
complete avoidance and they become very mute where they look like professional mimes, where they may even be comfortable, but they're not able to speak. At that point, when you see these kids stuck in the nonverbal, the professional mimes, where they might laugh, they might like, they might smile, they might go right up to their teacher, they might be able to go up to friends, they might have a lot of friends. They're so reinforced, they're so avoidant of speech that it's a speech phobia now. So those underlying issues might still be there, some of them, but that's not even the issue at this point. The main issue that's overriding everything is that increased avoidance and that secondary speech phobia that has developed from the increased expectation of speak, speak, speak. And too often when kids are not even engaging and they're maybe working with a local therapist and with all good intent, they're giving them, you know, stickers to speak, or you're going to be able to take a trip to Disney if you speak, but the child can't speak. So early on, it's always these comorbidities, the whys that we're talking about, the speech and language, the sensory, the processing, the bilingual, multilingual, cultural, um, all of those are playing a role. But then it gets overridden by the increased expectation, the push to speak, where that is now the overwhelming theme. And so really helping these children understand, helping them relate to their feelings, teaching them how to rate and grade and acknowledge and assess their feelings, but training these parents to really understand. I know I just went on and on and I apologize, but you know me. I just love to talk about this. I think that's so important. No. No, I love it because that's how I learned from you too. I, I think that it's, it's definitely the, the issue here is that the, that's why we said before, the earlier, the better prevention, because the longer the parents stay with that uh, situation where they're putting pressure on their kid, the more of the avoidance happens and the, the behavior of the child is gets rewarded for not, you know, communicating socially uh, as they grow. Oh. I think that that's why I have to do a lot of prevention. When we were talking that. about the speech and language, the sensory, the bilingual, one thing that we haven't talked a lot is what I see um, with this kind of processing, this auditory processing. Do you want to touch on that? You said you see this as well. I do. And um, actually, you know, Ben Haim uh, wrote a mm-hmm. couple of articles. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that I went to Tel Aviv and I went made an appointment with him because I said, look, I don't understand anything about your article. Can you talk in lay terms with me? So, um, and I talked to Evelyn Klein about this too, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, what you, what you just said, a kid who acts the way that you describe now would qualify for a child with uh, ADHD inattentive presentation all over the place, not paying attention, whatever. But I'm going to tell you something about me. I play the piano, right? And I play classical. So if you come and you talk to me when I'm playing the piano, it's like I have this allergic reaction. My brain is focused on the right. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I cannot talk while I'm talk, playing the piano classical. So that's what it is, is the afferent and the afferent uh, kind of uh, auditory. They cannot hear and speak. So the fluency of a conversation, which you mentioned before, so important I talk, you talk, and we talk together. We have a good rhythm. But if somebody has a difficult time jumping in to say something because they have to go to producing the the sound and the anxiety goes in, then they miss their turn and they don't speak. So that difficulty of getting the information in and, and getting it out 
is really something that, again, can it be assessed? Yes, it can be assessed. But I personally ask him, why don't you talk more about it? And do you have a way to uh, train kids with that? And he said he doesn't, but I'm sure that there is. And he provided some hope with that, but it's not his area of expertise. But there is such a thing as difficulty in processing the information. And I think that the speech and language therapist, when they do an assessment, they can definitely see that. And I can see that when I do a full assessment as well, when I do that with the kids. It was interesting that you brought him up because I knew you would. I know we've talked about it. And yeah, his work was is very interesting to me as well. Um, I'll never forget a little boy I had in session and he became very aware of his difficulty speaking and he was very articulate in his drawing. So a lot of these kids will draw how they feel even when they can't express it verbally. And I just have to say, he knew that he couldn't process in the cafeteria. He knew that he couldn't understand what the teacher was saying. But what was so interesting is that in session with me, he was verbal. But as soon as I heard, I, a sound went off in the other room, I'd see him look. Um, when his sibling came in the room and there was, the sibling was talking and then somebody else came in the room. I watched all this, look, listen, and learn, right? And he literally stopped speaking because he was too busy digesting and trying to take it all in. Well, that's a classroom, right? So it's not treat. Well, I can relate to that a hundred percent because if you go out in more than four people, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I'm not going to say anything because I'm just process, trying to process like the stereo kind of conversation going in each. It's true. And I think knowing this and more and more, I wish, you know, I, I, I wish that I were taking notes on this, what you're saying, because I think it's so important when you notice that this is the case then you need to make accommodations for that too. Right. Um, you know, how do you make accommodations for that? I have air conditioning because I live in Florida. Air conditioning is on all the time, right? So the minute the air conditioning goes off and it's like an old system, the kid, I see a reaction. Yeah. And when I see that, you know, maybe that's a good sign for what you were saying. And then I need to pay attention to that too. Yeah. And, you know, the accommodations in terms of getting services, I mean, we can do a whole nother talk on how to develop IEPs and 504s and how to accommodate these comorbidities in their IEPs and 504s. Because many of these kids, if they're in the public school, they may not even have accommodations or interventions. Or if they do, they have a separate one for speech and language and they're not even seeing how the SM fits into this. Right? Yeah, that is... Yes, I've, I've had several experiences, several times where I walked into an IEP and I hadn't had a lot of contact with the family before, but I walked into one that the parents asked me to go and I see the legibility, speech and language therapy only, speech, speech and language disorder, and I say, where is the SM? And sometimes the child has perfect articulation and language but they do it that way. So we have to re-educate and re, you know, redo the whole system. But you're right. Um, I think that this should all be there. And I don't know how a 504 would address all those accommodations that you and I are talking about. 
I don't think a 504. No, would. I do find states are all different and ages of children are different, preschool child with a disability versus older. But I agree with you when a child has these and are screening for in our evaluation process, these comorbidities going for an IEP to get the services to be able to do the accommodations and proper interventions within this classroom. You know, I have small groups in the room, small groups out of the room, the buddy process, all of that is done with all children. It's how you do it, when you do it, with who you do it, you know, how it changes Bye. based on the child's unique presentation. So I think that that's really important. And you're correct. I, I agree with you. We don't, you can't really accommodate these difficulties under a 504 heading. That's more of the timid child that, you know, needs the basic accommodations and interventions, but these other comorbidities really, you know, aren't there. Um, but some schools, you know, and you can't even do small groups out of the room without an I, I mean, an IEP where other schools can do so much of this without an IEP and a 504. So I do find it's, it, it is different for different states and different school districts, believe it or not. Unfortunately, although it's a federal law, so it shouldn't be different. For I know, I know, but it Just is. Just by the way. It is, it is. And yes. they call it different things, too. Well, it shouldn't be different, and um, it is a federal law. And whoever is listening to this uh, should get an advocate or a, a professional who is well-versed in the federal laws, you know, for 504 and the IDA and, you know, IP, understand what it is in order to help them advocate. I'm totally for that because it's very, it's especially for immigrants too. Immigrants get very uh, intimidated by this process that happens at school, especially yeah. when they say you're welcome to hire a lawyer. That's one of the first paragraphs that they hear. And it's a federal thing. So um, I have parents that immigrated from China who one just left the room many, many years ago, uh-huh. I would say 20 years ago. They just left the room. They didn't know what there was. When the minute they heard a lawyer, they left the room. So I think it's really important to help parents uh, with understanding that. And I think that the SMA and your podcast and everywhere that we can help parents and the, the websites that we can have parents understand this is really help. You know, it's good because that's what happened with Chad. You know, I'm on the board here in this area for Chad. If parents understand what their rights are, then they can go to meetings prepared. And that's part of my obligation to help them with that. So No, that's excellent points. And I think as advocates for parents and helping them navigate the school situation, we often tell parents, go with your gut. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. If it feels right, keep moving with it because it shouldn't feel wrong to you. You get your child. You may not understand it all. And that's why seeing an expert, seeing someone that really understands this population is really important. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right, right? Right. And right. I lived it with I my own with child you. and, you know, so yeah. many families. And that's why we're talking yeah. here because... You didn't take the diagnosis that was given inappropriately, and there you go. You know, it's like I know a lot because of you, and look what and you created. And I know a lot because of you. <laughs> I love, I love because of you. I love, that's a song. It's a song because of you. Yeah. I I truly love talking to you, and I love seeing you. I do too. And um, I hope Me to see too. you soon. And this was amazing, and I'd love to do more with you because I just love having conversation, and I think. This is what our listeners want. They want to hear us talk about this because this makes sense. 
Yeah, and it's real. It's not like some presentation that you don't have anything to do with. And both of us are so passionate about it. And and that's why I think we learn when we have passion. And I learn from you because you show passion and I have passion what I do too. And it's really great that we have jobs that we really love so much what we do. So, but I always think that I don't know enough. So I'm a nerd and I'm doing research and so are you. (laughs) No, this was great. And I thank you for your time. Um, You know, and I'm very grateful to you. I have the book that you wrote on, you know, that was a long time ago. Sophie's story you wrote is translated, you said, in a few languages. In Portuguese and in Mandarin, but they, they can't publish at Amazon in Mandarin. So oh. it's to be, yeah. But basically, you know, I wrote a long time ago and I really focus on the social communication disorder that you focus so much. Yeah. And I'm grateful to you that, you know, that I am in this area. It's very rewarding and I can't wait to continue learning from you and, and being your colleague too and sharing our, uh, our learning. So, and I, I feel the exact same way about you. You know that. I think you're awesome. I wish we lived in the same state, but we don't. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, you yes. know, Dr. Joffe. Maybe one day, who knows? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Joffe provides professional services in person and also consultation to other countries and locations via telehealth. And again, she's licensed in Florida and New York. And you've added so much to the SM community with your presentations at the SMA conference, training schools, training parents. Um, I, I just think the world of you, truly. Thank you. And I'm very grateful to you. Thank you for and giving me another opportunity to learn so much from you. Uh, okay. I will see you soon. You. And we'll connect again. Bye. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my knowledge. For more information, please go to selectivemutismcenter.org.